welcome to episode 63 of the People's History of Ideas podcast. Last episode, we followed Mao Zedong and the rest of the first division of the first army of the worker peasant revolutionary army into the Jingongshan region and looked at the reorganization of the army according to more democratic revolutionary principles in the village of San Juan. We will rejoin Mao as he comes to an accord with the local revolutionary leaders and establishes his first base area soon. This episode, I want to focus in on some background information on the region so that we can have a deeper understanding of the social and cultural context within which this first base area experience that Mao had took place in. For those unfamiliar with the term, a base area in the Chinese Revolution is a geographical space where the communists were able to set up a relatively stable presence and exercise political control. If the overall strategy of the Chinese Revolution involved a process whereby the countryside surrounded the city, the base areas were the strongholds from which the, the communists expanded to control the countryside before overwhelming the cities. As we will see, these base areas were hardly invulnerable to enemy attack and were sometimes lost entirely, but they were central to the strategy that emerged and was eventually victorious. Mao's experience in the Jingongshan is understood to be prototypical because it was where many of the basic lessons about how to create and sustain a base area were first learned even though the experience would be developed much further as the revolution advanced. But every base area was unique as well, because while there were universal aspects to the political lessons about base building that Mao and his comrades pioneered, there was a specific cultural and social context in every given location, and these specific local contexts were central to the success or failure of the base area. And China has lots of different specific local contexts, which vary hugely from each other. It's become fashionable among historians working at large-scale historical comparisons to compare China not with individual European countries, but with the continent of Europe as a whole. I think that given the diversity of Chinese cultures, local economies, and even languages, this is correct. And I bring this up to make the point that when we see base areas going up over the course of the Chinese Revolution in different parts of China, it's helpful to think of the differences between some of these regions as being really pretty massive. So, in each base area, there's always going to be a complex negotiation between an overall communist strategy aimed at China as a whole and the local particulars of how the communists managed to integrate with and become a part of the local society. And inherently, this involves a negotiation between communist outsiders and local populations. This dynamic is central to the process of the Chinese Revolution. There are no blank slates anywhere in China, where the communists show up and try to set up a base area. We're not going to be able to go in-depth for every place where there is a base area, but I think there's a point in going into some depth on the Jingongshan so that, in the future, 
Even though we won't have the time to get into all the particulars, it can serve as a reminder that even if we are mainly focusing on the development of ideology and the experiences that ultimately went into the creation of what would become Maoism, there's always some sort of interaction with complex local conditions and traditions going on that we won't always have the space to get into. Maybe this is a truism. Maybe most of you are already assuming that this is the case. Um, but it's interesting that many people who formally know this have lost sight of it in the past when writing about the Chinese and other revolutions. The importance of major figures like Mao and how their experiences led to ideas that were applied in a wide variety of contexts uh, in China and beyond is understandably distracting. But when we look at the concrete experience of these figures and the application of their ideas, the local context is fundamental to what actually happened. So there is this need, at least sometimes, even when we are mainly interested in the larger picture, that is the universal and the, the way in which concrete experience is elevated to something more abstract, there is this need to actually understand what that concrete and local experience was, or else our actual understanding of the larger ideas drawn in part from that experience will be stunted. Even people trying to put these ideas into practice have sometimes focused overly on what they perceive to be the universal aspects of rural base building, and their neglect of local particulars had disastrous results. Certainly in my own research on Mexico and Bolivia, I saw examples of this, as I discuss in my book, Trans-Pacific Revolutionaries, the Chinese Revolution in Latin America. Okay, you might be wondering, before we move on to the particulars of the Jingong Mountains, what were the universal aspects of base building? Let me give a short answer to that question right now. If you asked a historian of China, they would probably characterize the areas in China where communists were able to build base areas more or less as Stephen Averill did in Revolution in the Highlands, a book on the Jingongshang base area, which is considered a masterpiece of Chinese social history. Averill describes the Jingong Mountains as an, quote, archetypal Chinese border area, a topographically rugged, administratively divided, and economically deprived region with a reputation as an unruly bandit lair, end quote. So in China, we see base areas being established in areas where the state was very weak already and the terrain was very favorable. Now, in 1928, Mao goes into some detail on why, as he put it, quote, red political power can exist in China, end quote. And his explanation overlaps with, but is different from, the academic historian's reasons given above. It's a very important talk, so we'll deal with it at the time uh, when it comes up in the podcast. But it is interesting that he, too, in that talk, speaks explicitly about what he sees as the particular conditions of China. Here is how Mao puts it in October 1928, just about exactly a year from where we left off in our last episode. Quote, 
The long-term survival inside a country of one or more small areas under red political power, completely encircled by a white regime, is a phenomenon that has never occurred anywhere else in the world. There are special reasons for this unusual phenomenon. It can exist and develop only under certain conditions. First, it cannot occur in any imperialist country or in any colony under direct imperialist rule, but can only occur in China, which is economically backward and which is semi-colonial and under indirect imperialist rule. For this unusual phenomenon can occur only in conjunction with another unusual phenomenon, namely war within the white regime, by which Mao means the fighting between different factions and strongmen within the Guomindang and between the Guomindang and certain warlords. Then, when Maoism gets turned into an ideology that leaves China and goes around the world, this argument of Mao's gets heavily amended. So we've got the academic historian's definition of a base area. I've given you kind of an introduction to uh, what Mao was thinking about base areas in 1928. And um, then there's going to later on be an attempt to have something more universal and international to say about what goes into there being a base area. Uh, so this is something we'll be talking about uh, as time goes on, getting into more depth into. Um, and like I said, there ends up being a tendency where this experience in the Jingangshan and later in other parts of China, especially the experience in Yan'an, gets codified into a universal experience that some people try to more or less replicate in other parts of the world. And the local particularities of the actual experience in China get kind of put to one side, even though they're central to the actual experience that took place. So let's focus a little in this episode uh, and in some upcoming episodes on the particularities of the Jingongshan. Like I mentioned last episode, the Jingong Mountains are a sub-range in the central part of the larger Luoxiao Mountains. The Jingong Massif consists of a number of thickly forested parallel ridges, and between the mountains you have these basins and valleys. One of the big, long-term stories of Chinese and Southeast Asian history is the story of the migration and settlement of Han Chinese people in the mountainous areas of southern China and the pushing out of some of the original ethnic groups from these mountain regions into the countries of Southeast Asia and into the uh, really southern parts of China. Probably the best known of these ethnic groups that mostly got uh, pushed out are the Miao and Yao people. Anyways, this process began in the Jingongshan about 2,000 years ago, give or take a couple centuries. Um, although it became much more intense during the centuries from about 800 to 1200. For example, the oldest surviving village in the region dates from about the year 800 or 900, but the county that it belongs to has existed as an administrative unit for about 2,000 years. The families in the region that are descendants of these Han Chinese settlers are known as the native registrants. This term derives from the old household registration system in imperial China, um, where it was, it was sort of the bureaucratic administrative system for keeping track of, you know, who, who lived where, 
who was who, who existed, who was, uh, who owed taxes, that sort of thing. These native registrants settled mainly in the valleys and basins of the Jingong region, not so much on the hillsides and mountain slopes, although there was some of that. These were the areas best suited for agriculture and had the best communications in terms of navigable waterways and roads connecting this fairly remote region with better traveled trade routes and major cities. Later on, during the late Ming Dynasty, uh, the Ming Dynasty lasted from 1368 to 1644, and the early Qing Dynasty, which began in 1644, there was another big wave of migration into the region. These people were mostly speakers of the Hakka language. The Hakka ethnic group is a Chinese ethnicity that is thought to have originated from uh, a mix between the cultures of Han Chinese with the various original ethnic groups of southern China, like the uh, previously mentioned Yao and Miao. So while the Hakka are a Chinese ethnic group, they had different customs and language from that of the first settlers of the Jingongshan. This group of settlers became known as the guest registrants because of their comparatively late arrival to the region compared to the native registrant Han Chinese. It's a testament to the incredibly long history that China has that people who arrived in a place in the 1500s would still be called guest registrants 400 years later. One historian got a little carried away with the term and actually tried to cite the fact that the Hakka were highly mobile newcomers as part of the reason for their participation in the Chinese Revolution. Obviously, the idea that people who arrived in the Jingongshan before the Mayflower sailed for America were newcomers to the region in the 1920s is totally absurd. But their later arrival was a major factor in the social divisions that characterized the Jingongshan when Mao got there. The Hakka came to the area for a number of reasons some because of economic pressures where they had previously been living, some because they were uprooted by the chaos surrounding the transition between the Ming and Qing dynasties. A whole bunch of people were forced to leave the coast of Fujian province due to an imperial decree that depopulated the coast so as to deny pirates a safe haven. Um, the guest registrant Hakka, for the most part, had experience making the mountains and hills of southern China bloom. They had experience with crops that grew on hillsides and knew how to sculpt slopes into terraced agricultural land. And so, with no land left in the valleys and basins of the Jingongshan, the Hakka moved to occupy the hills and mountains higher up. Down in the valleys, the main agricultural product was rice. But in the hills, only a small amount of land could be turned into terraces for growing rice. Peasants up in the mountains had to work harder to make the land produce, and often they had to work at a variety of products, such as timber, bamboo, peanuts, tea, beans, sweet potatoes, and the gathering of medicinal herbs. They also often had to combine this agricultural work with some sort of handicraft work or other side hustle in order to make ends meet. But it was possible for the Hakka to work hard and prosper on the slopes of the Jingongshan. Here is how one local gazetteer described the settlement process. Quote, 
During the Kangsha period, that's the reign of the Kangsha era, emperor from 1662 to 1722, poor people from Fujian and Guangdong learned that Longchuan, uh, that's an old name for a county in the Jinggong region, had mountains they could till. So they gradually entered the area one by one and asked landlords for mountains to tenant, promising to plant shan, which is Chinese fir, shan seedlings, and wait for them to mature and then sell them, splitting the proceeds evenly with the mountain lords. The mountain lords were happy to oblige. The mountain lords are just these um, Han Chinese lowlanders who owned land on these mountains, even though they had uh, not cultivated it all or, at all or exploited it. They had just sort of, by virtue of having arrived first in the region, claimed the land and owned it. The tenants drew upon the mountains for materials to build shacks. They used the first five years to open the wasteland, planting crops such as dry rice, beans, potatoes, and yams. After five years, the soil was rich, and they began to plant shan seedlings. When the seedlings were not yet tall, food crops could still be cultivated. In this way, the migrants invested and saved for 10 years, taking wives, building houses, and secretly laying a good foundation of wealth. Then, after 20 years, the trees were sold for a great profit. But despite the possibility of Hakka prosperity, there was a fundamental economic divide between the lowlands and the highlands. The land produced more easily and more abundantly down below. And so even though there were prosperous elites and poor peasants in the valleys and on the mountain slopes, there was a basic geographical division between the more wealthy valleys and the poorer mountainsides, and this coincided with an ethnic division between Hakka and Han Chinese. Here's how Mao Zedong wrote about this division between the Hakka and the Han Chinese in the Jinggong Mountains in a report from the Jinggong Shan Front Committee written to the Central Committee of the Communist Party in November 1928, and which appears uh, somewhat altered in Mao's selected works under the title the struggle on the Jinggongshan. This is uh, subheading three of uh, the subsection of the report titled The Present State of the Party in the Border Area. And this subsection is titled The Problem of the Native Inhabitants and the Settlers. Um, keeping in mind that uh, by settlers, we're talking about people who've been in the area for several hundred years. Quote, there is another peculiar feature in the border area, namely the division between the native inhabitants and the settlers. A profound gulf has long existed between the native inhabitants and those who came here as colonists from Guangdong and Fujian hundreds of years ago. Their traditional feuds are deep-seated, sometimes erupting in violent national struggles, uh, here Mao has put national in quote marks. From the Guangdong border all the way along the border areas of Hunan and Jiangxia up to southern Hubei, there are probably several millions of such settlers. These settlers occupy the mountainous areas 
are oppressed by the native inhabitants who live in the plains and have never had any political rights. They all, without exception, welcomed the national revolution of last year and the year before, thinking that the day had come for them to raise their heads. But unexpectedly, the revolution turned into a counter-revolution, and the settlers continue to be oppressed by the native inhabitants as before. Within our independent border area, the problem of the native inhabitants and the settlers exists in Ningong, Suichuan, Lingxian, and Chaling, but it is in Ningong that it is most serious. Last year and the year before, the revolutionaries among the native inhabitants joined together with the settlers under the leadership of the Communist Party, overthrew the political power of the native despotic gentry, and took control of the whole county. Last June, the government of Zhu Beda turned counter-revolutionary. In September, the despotic gentry served as guides for Zhu Beda's army in its suppression campaign against Ningong in a war which still continues. In theory, this kind of schism should not extend to the oppressed workers and peasants, let alone to the party. In reality, however, by force of long historical tradition, the division between the native inhabitants and the settlers still leaves considerable traces. For example, after the August defeat in the border area, when the native despotic gentry returned to Ningong, bringing the troops with them, they conducted large-scale propaganda claiming that the settlers were going to massacre the native inhabitants. As a result, most of the native peasants defected, put on white ribbons, and led the army to burn down houses and comb the mountains. And when, in October and November, the Red Army twice defeated the White Army, the native peasants fled with them, and the settlers hastened to confiscate the pigs, cattle, clothes, and other property of the native peasants. When reflected inside the party, this sort of historical residue takes the form of pointless arguments. The way to settle this is to proclaim to the masses that peasants who have defected will not be killed, and that peasants who have defected will also get their share of the land when they return, thus leading them to shake off the influence of the despotic gentry and return home without misgivings. Many of them have already done so. At the same time, the county Soviet must compel the settlers to return confiscated cattle and property to the original owners, and notices must be posted stating that native peasants will be protected. Within the party, the causes of differences should be eliminated and education should be intensified in order to achieve unity. So, we can see from what Mao wrote in this report that as the Communist Party sinks roots in the area and develops the base area, the ethnic divisions in the area will find expression in how the struggle unfolds and even within the Communist Party itself as it recruits from the local population. What Mao described in that report was how, for a moment at least, the class war of the peasants against the gentry became more an ethnic war of Hakka against Han, very much against the wishes of and the policy of Mao and the communist leadership who were leading the war. Anyways, we'll deal with these events in more detail when we get to them in an episode in the not-too-distant future. In the meantime, I wanted to 
read that out just to illustrate the great importance that this Hakka and Han or native and guest registrant division had on how the revolution played out during this crucial phase of the Chinese revolution. Next episode, we're going to talk about bandits. All right, before we end, I want to thank everyone for your reviews and ratings. Ratings and reviews do help people to find the podcast. So if you enjoyed the episode or learned something, please do consider leaving a rating or review.